You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Wednesday at 8 p.m. Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio. Our first time in a long time. Hi, huh, Dr. Esteban. Hi, how are you? Are you I am doing, doing quite well. We are doing our very first interview of 2021. Excellent. Yes, very, very cool. Very cool. And uh, our guest today is going to be Erin Mason of a company called Easy Partners, and she's all about merch and uh, production of venues and, and all sorts of cool stuff, which we'll talk about shortly. But uh, we do have uh, two hosts. You are Dr. Esteban. Yes, Marconi, emeritus. emeritus. That's right, emeritus. They're still going, through, they're still working that out. That's right, that's right. Not official emeritus, but uh, right. on paper. Just like at this point, on paper, the Mets have Trevor Bauer, but he hasn't officially stated that he will play for them. This year. So uh, right. if the Mets won the 2021 World Series and somebody listens to this podcast, they will say, oh, that was the same day Trevor Bauer may or may not have signed with the Mets. So we're actually waiting on his big hashtag decision. But I'm your professor, David Kirk Phil. As you can see, I'm a Mets fan and also your professor, David Kirk Phil. And before we go any further, should we give thanks to the people we want to give thanks to? Okay. We are going to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss, and Zach Brown. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you're ready. And our thanks go to Christine. Oi. They. A wealth manager at the Forefront Group, F-O-U-R, Front Group. Christine's helped many professionals all around the world for many, many decades manage their investments, plan out for the retirement when you, I'm talking about you, listener, not me, you. It's all about you. When you are thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, you want to think, you want to think about the Forefront Group and you want to go do Christine dot Oi. they at Forefront. Com. What is coming out in June of 2021, Dr. Esteban? The last oil off for savings. <laughs> and I left off the last line for foolishness, my opinion. Yes. It could be actually a seventh edition. Somebody has twisted our arm, our arms. 
and have said that we would like to see a seventh edition of your book. So we are doing it, and we are actually in the final stages of the editing ready for production. That's right. We wrote our thing, and then we, uh, it was, it's more than a revision. I would say it's a revision of the sixth edition, but on steroids. There are new chapters, a lot of new information, totally up to date. And this actually should be for, especially for the uh, indie, indie musician, this should be up to date for them uh, for a few years, two or three years, I hope. So we are now joined by Aaron Mason. And when I say Aaron, I have a sort of a New Jersey accent. It sounds like I'm saying A-I-R-O-N, like Aaron, like, like we breathe in air. My wife would say it's Aaron. Aaron, how do you say your first name? Aaron. You say kind of like me, Aaron. Right. But just right. listeners real quick. Aaron Mason uh, is, uh, works with Easy Partners, which is a New York-based company specializing in merch and apparel for musicians, bands, artists, creators, and other entertainment properties. At the same time, Aaron also has had a second career in production, working as a venue production manager and working in various departments and music festivals. So we have a lot that we can cover with Aaron today. So thank you, Aaron, for being here with us. And Dr. Esteban Marconi, why don't you begin? With well, I would great. begin actually by saying, which hat do you like wearing the best? You know, I like that I get to wear a lot of hats. Mm -hmm. I would say that with merchandise, it's second nature to me. And I've been doing that the longest. Um, but I like everything that has to do with putting on a show. So when the opportunity came to get into production, it was really exciting because I could work a little bit in every department. Uh, but for merchandise, I would say it's easier at this point. I could do it with my eyes closed in some respect, but with production, it keeps me challenged. So it all depends on the show and the day, which is what, mm -hmm. what I'm enjoying more at the time. Mm -hmm. What are some of the more creative things that have happened during COVID on the merch side? Well, a lot of the business, I'd say, you know, most of the business has gone to the web stores because that is where artists can continue to make money and be relevant or mm -hmm. live streams. You know, in my um, experience, we're dealing with several different clients. We manage most of our clients' web stores. So we're trying to think of new ways to you know, reach the fans, whether it be new bundles, new product, or um, maybe like a mystery box or something like that. Just, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of, you know, whatever the recent holiday is. So, you know, we just lived through um, the holiday season. So there was a lot of, you know, we had the Black Friday. So you want to do something around that mm -hmm. or, you know, holiday specials, right. whatever you can. Is there anything creative for Valentine's Day that you uh, are involved with? You know, we are talking, yeah, nothing that really stands out this one. We did some bumper stickers uh, around it and then, you know, a couple different socials to a few items, but nothing that really sticks out at this point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how big of a hit has merch take, would you say, in the pandemic? Well, it, you know, I'd say 70 to 80% of our business is live tour sales. Of and course. then you've got licensing and web stores and web stores is really a small fraction of it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's 
in the pandemic, it's the only place that fans can really go to get something like that. So while those sales have, you know, drastically increased, mm-hmm. it's still just a fraction of what they would normally be making. Yeah. So, you know, that part is that part of the business is up, but overall it's all down. Right. And I would assume retail is down as well. Man. Absolutely. Like when it first happened, you know, all the licensees were worried and freaking out because the deals of their terms and contracts, they didn't look like they were going to be able to meet any of them, but you know, we're all, you know, kind of in this together. So, you know, everybody understood, you know, we know what's going on. Everything is because of the pandemic. So right. you know, everybody's been able to work together. It's just overall, everything is down. Right. So with a, big tour coming up that the company hasn't serviced yet. Do they do a bidding? Is there, is that still around where companies can bid for the tour? Um, I don't see that in my field as much like most, all of our clients, uh, we, yes. Okay. Sorry. Yes. I think it does still happen, but in our, um, in our roster, our clients, we have already a deal in place with most of them. So, you know, we plan in advance for the tours. We represent them in other facets, such as licensing and managing their webs. So uh, we already kind of anticipate that. Now, when an artist is looking for new representation, you may hear about it and then you can go and place a bid for that. But that might be more of an overall bid to be their regular merchandiser. Right. Uh, or sometimes we might just fulfill product for them for a tour right. and they handle everything beyond that. Right. So who, for our example, who, and, oh, sorry, who got the, uh, Billy Irish came on, on the scene. Well, that's an interesting, um, okay. example because I actually know her merchandise person pretty well. Right. So she came on the scene and then she got signed and was, Already a merch company interested in her knowing she's going to tour as she was exploding? You know, uh, I know her regular road person and she had started out with her from the beginning um, and got to grow with her exponentially as she Mm -hmm. blew up. And she was picked up by a bigger merch company. And I don't know all the terms of that, but um, they she retained her as the road person. So she didn't just drop, you know, everything she had going. So I would say in that case, sometimes if if a company really wants to, you know, take on an artist, they're going to work within that artist's terms. So I think especially an artist in demand like that has a Mm -hmm. lot of power in negotiations. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and that comes in on a lot of things, uh, probably as we'll talk about more when we, discuss merch deals and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, that's what I was going to ask. So what about a hip hop artist? Would they, uh, certainly merch is extremely big for them, uh, but is there any difference between what might be offered at a hip hop show than for, let's say, a, a rock show like Billy Irish? If we're, are we talking about product? Yes. You know, I think at the end of the day, it's always going to come down to the t-shirt is going to be number one. Mm-hmm. Um, that is always the biggest seller, the biggest uh, opportunity to make money. But, 
yeah, different artists can offer kind of almost whatever they want, you know, unless you're getting into food and beverage and you need special licenses, but you know, unique items. Um, I would say I haven't personally worked in, with a lot of hip hop acts in that respect. So I, I can't speak to it as well as probably rock, you know, but, uh, at these days, I think you, you can see a wide range of offerings. Um, but it will always come down to the t-shirt being the number one item. Right. Okay. So how does it work then? Uh, let's just take the t-shirt for an example. Chris, we've, I've read little funny stories about Keith Richards saying that I don't get royalty statements anymore. I get statements on how many bales of cotton that we bought from, the, from some farm somewhere and, and, and uh, was processed. So how far back can sort of the, the group own or, or be part of? Um. Well, I mean, Rolling Stone, that's probably one of the most extreme uh, examples you can have as far as a, a high selling artist. Um, and I'm not really sure actually what the question is as far as the t-shirt. In, in other words, does, does the artist ever own, like we're talking about the Rolling Stones, and it seems like he, that uh, Keith was either making fun or it was the truth, that they were actually owning the cotton that the t-shirt logo was being put on and then being sold at uh, retail or at concerts. And I'm just wondering that many artists, do they just go with a merch company and all of that is in the background and then they yeah, sell. For the most part, I mean, Rolling Stones money, they probably could buy, you know, fields and start from scratch, but somebody mm -hmm. maybe more up and coming is gonna start with a blank t-shirt and then take it to the printer. And depending on how many you want, are you gonna buy, um, you know, a small run? Or are you going to purchase in bulk? Like mm -hmm. if you're working with suppliers, like the more you purchase, the better deals you're gonna get. Sure. And the higher your numbers, the better deals you're gonna get. Same mm -hmm. with printing. So the more you do, the cheaper it is. But you know, a lot of up and coming artists necessarily can't afford to do that. So you wanna have small minimums. Because you also don't want to be sitting on a bunch of cotton that you right. can't move. Right. Exactly. Now, uh, do merch companies offer advances for the artist? Well, certainly some do. I, I think especially in um, like a more established artist or mm -hmm. they may come in and offer a 360 deal, meaning they're going to come in and give them a large sum and you know, take over all kind of aspects, whether it be touring and licensing and everything, mm -hmm. including merchandise. So some artists have that deal and that includes merchandise. Um, but then other artists can, uh, you know, tailor it to their needs and wants and, and shop out what they want per department. They have more control that way. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think maybe it's cyclical because it kind of like, you'll have a lot of independent companies for some years and then um, a larger company will come in and absorb them all. And then, uh, and that happened to me in the beginning of my career, when I first started to get on larger tours, I was working for a more established merchandise company. It was called Ant Hill Trading. 
and they were absorbed by a larger entity. And I lived through that. And then um, that company I went was working with went into a non-compete for several years. And then when they reformed, um, it was that was Easy Partners, and I've been with them since. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so on a $30 t-shirt, how does the breakdown work? Who gets what? Well, I think I would personally start the other way and say, okay, okay this t-shirt costs, you know, maybe $250 to $4, depending on the shirt. And then okay, sure. what's the print going to be? So you know, uh, an artist that maybe is thinking big picture or, or you have your management merchandise company that's guiding you, which is something like we would do. But at the end of the day, the artist is going to sign off. Um, you know, how many colors are you going to have? That is all going to add up. And are you going to do one side or two sides? And are you going to try and do the sleeve? Because then you have another add-on. So like each print or screen is its own right. cost. Right. So you know, a t-shirt that starts at $2 can go up to $12 pretty quick. Mm -hmm. um, and then you would determine what you're going to sell it for. So I think $30 is a pretty good average right now. And, you know, sometimes you have one shirt that maybe you have one color front print, and then you have a second shirt that's got, you know, eight colors, two sides, but you can't necessarily at a show sell them for different prices either because mm -hmm. it's going to confuse the fans. Um, it just depends on the artist too. So uh, you mark it up according to what you have to pay out, right? Mm -hmm. So it could be anywhere from a 50% to 100% markup, I would say, probably not less. Mm -hmm. And because everybody wants a piece of the pie, you know, you're taking that a $12 cost shirt into a venue that's going to take on average, I'd say anywhere from 15 to 30% mm -hmm. and depending on who's selling the shirt. So, mm -hmm. and then whatever the deal is between the artist and the merchandise company and you, you take out all your costs for shipping and, um, you know, labor depending mm -hmm. on if you're selling or not. And then th the artists will have a tailored deal to what, you know, they're getting at the end of the day. So mm -hmm. it depends on the artist. I hate to say that it's like uh, a general number, but you know, it could be anywhere from 10 to 25% they'll end up with. Okay. And is the markup on other items more or higher? Let's say it really depends on the products and where you get it. So I think the greatest uh, moneymaker is the t-shirt because you can make have the most profit margin on that. Mm -hmm. But let's say you do stocks and they can be very expensive. So you're maybe paying the same amount, $12 for a pair of socks, but you can't really sell a pair of socks for $30. Like okay. it's just kind of wrong like right. I'm, I'm not going to buy a 30 dollar pair of socks but right. you know maybe you get your socks for eight dollars it's still kind of high but you can sell that for probably 15 for a branded sock maybe 20 mm -hmm. if it's really cool right okay and then mo most merch companies have a um a representative 
assigned to the tour that goes with the artist in the shows? Well, I would say they definitely should. Mm -hmm. And you need somebody that's mm -hmm. watching out for you because it is one of the few places that you're earning money on a tour and not spending money, you know, aside mm -hmm. from the guarantees, um, you know, merch is a nightly revenue. So especially when you get into higher numbers, sometimes you might have two or three people if you have your own truck or several trucks, you know, if you're, if you're mm -hmm. like you two or Taylor Swift or Billie Eilish, you're moving a lot of merch a night. So you really need somebody on hand. But then again, you look at like the lowest level bands and this is where I started, you know, in a van um, with my boyfriend's band, now my husband and, you know, selling t-shirts and those you need a merch person then, right? Mm -hmm. Because you need somebody to sell your shirts, but they don't, they're not able to afford the techs and the roadies as much right? because, you know, they're starting out, they're doing everything themselves. So I think the merch person needs start very early on and carry all the way throughout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dave, you want to add? I see you chomping a little bit. Oh, yeah. Were you on a uh, tour manager 101, Aaron? I was, yes. Okay, that's where I know. Okay, because uh, I heard you interviewed. I heard you talk about merch uh, through the. For those of you listening, tour manager is that tour manager one hundred and one. I guess that's what it's called. But they uh, tour management one hundred and one. I actually management. haven't brought myself to listen to myself yet, but I was there, so I remember it. Enough. Okay, and I, okay, so I, I heard. Uh, I walked the dog and listened to those webinars, so I didn't see you, but I heard you. And uh, what reminded me was uh, how you got started. You were in the van with your uh, boyfriend uh, doing merch for the, for that band, and then you know you guys got married, and now you have a kid. So um, right. that was the one thing I wanted to add at this point. Well, I would like to preclude that because that is not really why I got into the industry. It was just a coincidence because I knew like very early on, probably when I was 15, 16, and I started going to shows, that that's what I wanted to do with my life. And I, uh, out of high school, I moved to the Pacific Northwest and was interning for a regional music video show, just doing station IDs and um, going to community college. And from there, I got an internship with a couple of record labels and was started looking for uh, music business programs to transfer into. And there wasn't a lot back then. So it's really cool to see what you guys are doing now and I, you know, I'm curious as to like I, what the options would be if I was starting over. Not that I want to, mind you, but um, it's it is a very cool experience that somebody has more access to this kind of thing. Because like literally, there was two, and this was you know 22 years ago or something. Um, and I went and looked at one actually, which, which was at USC, uh, but then you know, what happened was I was interning with the record labels and I ended up meeting my now husband. And, you know, as it happens, you fall in love. And he said, I want really would like you to come with me and you can do the merch. And I, and I didn't anticipate that. I never set out and said, merchandise is gonna, I, this is what I want to do. It's something I fell into, but I really enjoyed it. And it was, you know, I did a good job and I was kept being referred to other aspects. So from that, um, one of his booking agents knew 
that I was reliable and did a good job and was referred to Ant Hill Trading, the larger company, um, who at the time did uh, represent like the Rolling Stones, Iggy Pop and others of notable worth and uh, got a job with Blondie, which was and still is my longtime regular and one of my favorite artists to work for. So, you know, you never know where something is going to take you. Um, and through Blondie is also how I got my production gig because I'm very diligent with my advance work, which I would say is very important in this business is you want to make sure that you look through everything ahead of time. You don't want to show up to a show and not know what the deal is or have talked to somebody that you're going to be working with. So I would over advance my shows and confirm everything several times. By the time I showed up, they knew what they were getting. And um, in one market, I, it was Albuquerque and I recognized the promoter was local to where I lived in Phoenix. And so when he came by the merch booth, I said, oh, I know who you are. Like you're in Phoenix, I live there too. And he was so impressed that he talked to me for a while and then invited me to come visit him when I was off tour. And when I did, then he ended up offering me the job as the local production manager. Mm. So just in like doing my job well, that led to so many more open doors in my life. So sure. I sure. think that's one of my best advice I could give to somebody that's starting out. Well, not just doing your job well, but you also knew who was in your local market and you recognized the person and you spoke up and you said something because a lot of people, maybe they'd be intimidated or they'd be too shy, but you said something and that led to the conversation, which led to you connecting when you were off tour, which led to the job. So there's, there's that too. Right. People do appreciate somebody that's eager and pays attention and wants it. So if you're after it, you know, you can get it. You just have to keep after it. Let's go to the uh, production side. You just touched on it certainly a bit. Um, how did it actually uh, occur where somebody actually trusted you in doing a production for your first show? Well, um, so the talent buyer, like I was talking about with the advance, um, I'm very thorough in my advance. And this was just for merchandise I was advancing. So I imagine that when I did my advance with him, I probably stood out among any other merch advance that he had got because mm -hmm. I was so upfront and, um, you know, following up and getting the correct information that when I transitioned into the venue production manager, you know, I will say I was probably terrified to do it because I felt like imposter syndrome or like, I don't know enough about this, but I did have a lot of support um, from the venue people as well. So uh, being scared probably helped me because I was more careful to check and balance everything and make mm -hmm. sure I crossed off every box that needed to be done. So um, I disciplined myself to, you know, double check everything, especially and, and make sure everything was in an email because you can have a conversation, um, but you can't refer back to a conversation, you, you know? So even if we did, you know, have a call, which I will say is also very important because you can go through 20 emails and maybe do the same thing in one short phone call. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, it's always good to have that direct line, but also follow up and put everything into an email. So when I first got my first gig was um, Cedric, the entertainer wow. and the comedian. And I will say, I love comedy <laughs> production. It's amazing. It's a microphone in a stool among other things, but you know, it was a good first show because there was minimal elements. Um, but I was so nervous and they were very nice and you know, if you're nice to people, you're going to get the support you need. Mm -hmm. So just being nice, laying it out there, not acting like I knew more than I did and knowing who to go to for help. So, you know, utilizing your departments and I would never do anything. I wouldn't ask of anybody. So as a production manager in a load in or load out, I'm on the floor, I'm rolling cables. It doesn't matter, you know, like lead by example and, Nothing is beneath me, right? If something needs to be done, then you do it. So that way he had no backup band or anything or opening act. For Cedric, uh, he might have had an opener that did like 10 or 15 minutes. And right. I honestly don't remember. But what I do have still um, in, in what has come to in, uh, over the time of my career is Google Docs, which mm -hmm. I have all my advances in a Google Docs and like each tab became a new year. So like still, and I own them all. So I can go back and look through every single advance and show I've ever done. Um, and I keep this for merchandise as well. That mm -hmm. way I'm like, I know I've been at that venue. Um, let's see who I talked to. Let's see what the deal was. Oh, we're going back. No, we did this last time. So I can kind of, um, you know, over the years cut out, uh, you know, some of the work because I'd say, oh, yeah, I remember this is what it was like or right. I keep notes, you know, as far as touring, I'll have what what is the merchandise area look like and um, what uh, what was the deal or who was the contact just just mm -hmm. little things all add up to help you out in the long run if you're diligent and keep good notes. Right. What was the most uh, complicated show you did? It, it depends. Like, I think it can be because of like attitude actually because even if something is difficult and people are nice it's easier to combat but if you have difficult personalities uh and i would never like name that direct but you know then you've got to overcome two things maybe issues with equipment and then somebody being upset about it it's a whole nother thing. So mm -hmm. it's never like, this is the problem. It's what is the solution? Yeah. Uh, and then for merch, I did a K-pop tour and like the numbers on that were insane. I would say an average of touring bands going to do, you know, three to 15 a head a night, meaning like per head is yeah. how much each person that went would have spent, sure. you know, when you take the total sales yeah. of the show. Yeah. So this was my highest numbers. We were doing 30 to 40 a night per head. Whoa. It was insane. And the, they had rented out all these old theaters uh, themselves. And so these theaters weren't hosting the show, but rather doing a rental. So they had no idea really what they were getting into. And I had to advance the heck out of that. And convince them all that I needed to start selling at like one or two in the afternoon for a seven o'clock show. Mm -hmm. And that was an uphill battle. 
Uh, and I have to go back and like back and forth so many times and beg. And, you know, we ended up doing those numbers because I fought so hard for it. But that's also why they hired me because they knew I would do that. And I was actually mm -hmm. working for a different company that I normally don't work with. So, mm -hmm. wow. You know. So that wasn't a Kiss show. I have hours. not worked a Kiss show, but I have worked with somebody that worked for Kiss for a long time. So, right. okay. Yes, Dave, you had your hand up. I, I did have my hand raised, and that is the great thing about doing these things on Zoom. So uh, we're not interrupting. One question I had for her is I'd like to talk about. You were alluding to, to, to the organization of somebody, whether you're in your job or somebody who's on the road, whether you're tour managing, uh, production manager, even if you're an, an artist sort of doing it yourself or, or an artist manager. You mentioned Google Docs. What is the best way that you stay organized as it relates to in the office, on the road, and you have the same amount of uh, material? Is it Google Docs, Dropbox? Do you have a, bring a hard drive with you? Do you trust your laptop? Uh, talk a little bit about that, as well as, you know, suppose the, your laptop burns out, you know, on day 25 of your 60 day tour, you know? Well, that's a good point because I live through my laptop. Absolutely. And that being said, I probably need a new one, but I love this one so much and it's been so good to me. Um, what kind but, do you use? What kind of laptop is it? Well, this one, I don't even think it's a Samsung that I got probably three years ago, which is the longest I've ever had a laptop. I am a PC person. I'm not an Apple person when, ah. when it comes to computers, but, um, you know, I would be, I would be dead if I lost it. I would feel like, oh, I've lost a limb if I lost my laptop <laughs> and I do carry a hard drive to back up all my files. But the Google Docs is great because it's in the cloud. And um, I also keep, I use the Google um, Docs app or Sheets. I'm sorry. It's technically mm -hmm. Sheets. They've kind of changed that. Um, but I keep it on my phone so I can also quickly access that if I need to check a deal or something on the fly. Um, but uh, I'll maybe every few months update my hard drive and keep my hard drive with me. I try and keep it in a different spot. So if I'm on tour, you know, I'll leave it not with my computer because obviously if I lost my computer, then I'd need my hard drive. Um, I, most of it, I, I just have to rely on the cloud. Uh, I keep like a, usually I'll have like a little notebook of some sort with me, like, which I will keep my notes in on them too. So I, I, I like a physical, I like the cloud, but my laptop is probably most important to me next to, you know, like my family. That's great. I think that's important. I think it's important to uh, discuss that because you do go on the road and uh, backing up the laptop either via the cloud or on a hard drive is extremely important because you can just imagine just when you need that one document, all of a sudden I'm hitting the on button and it's not turning on, you know? Right. I think this is a sign. I'm going to back it up after this call. <laughs> there we go. We helped you out. Okay. So it's a male centric business. Is it getting easier for females to break into what's say the production? That's a hard question right now 
you know, because nobody's mm. yeah. moving. But uh, yeah, I think it's still difficult, but I, there's definitely way more opportunity uh, than there was. And there is a lot of more embracing of the female culture on the road. And mm. I know when I come across other ladies of the road, you know, I am extra excited and like want to, you know, know more and support them. Like there's a mm -hmm. whole, uh, there's a lot of groups of audio ladies and, you know, lighting ladies and, and production managers and assistants and tour managers. Uh, you know, and I've, my, the merchandise company I work for is female owned and a lot of the bands I work with are female led. So mm -hmm. I'm fortunate enough to be surrounded by that kind of support. And uh, I know I would, I would still say, you know, it's heavy on the male uh, ratio, but it's definitely more accepted and of the norm than it was when I first started. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm always happy. And, you know, first and foremost merit, you're not going to just get a job because of, you know, your sex, but right. I would say, and especially when I first started, I felt like I probably had to do my job twice as good to just even make an impression. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in the email to me yesterday, Aaron, speaking about this, you mentioned that you, that you are a touring parent. That was my next question. Go yeah. Ahead. Do you think a man, if I was having that same email exchange before our interview, would write, oh, by the way, I'm also a touring parent. Definitely so, not. <laughs> but just the fact that you asked me, you know, it brings up the whole thing about, about uh, females in the industry doing what you're doing. And, you ha you know, that's a thing that you would talk about. Would a guy talk about that because there are dads out there too, but they're bringing that up in an interview, you know? So it's this double standard thing, you know? Yeah. You know, I brought that up because when I did the tour management 101, uh, I didn't even think about it, honestly, but they brought it up and I was like, oh yeah, that that's like, that's part of an accomplishment is to be able to do both. Um, so I'm on lots of tours with other parents uh, but it's more of a surprise, you know, that I'm the one with the kid uh, because I'm the mom. So I think people traditionally expect the moms to stay home. And I did stay home for the first three years after um, I had my son. And I have one son who's now 11. Uh, and I found it very difficult to get back in because it was right at the time that the company I was working with had sold I've been acquired um, by the larger company. And then, you know, I was trying just through every contact I had before that. I mean, I went from being on private jets on the Sex Pistols tour to, you know, walking through um, Bed Bath and Beyond and hearing the bands I worked with over the loudspeaker going, what is happening and how do I get back? <laughs> so, you know, luckily the company that, had reformed them became easy partners and I was able to get back with them really quickly. Um, I don't even know how I got to this point uh, from your question, but you know, I think that, you know, when you're in your own little tour family, it's different. And then, you know, other outsiders are probably more surprised. So, mm. but also as a touring parent, I find that 
I care more about doing a better job because I don't want to leave my family for nothing or not necessarily nothing, but I want to really make my time away most valuable. So it's as a, as a touring parent, I think it only makes me more driven and focused on the job itself. Mm -hmm. Are more artists bringing their kids on tour? It's funny because so often people ask me why I don't bring my son. And I will say, I am not the artist. Okay. Like mm. I am in the crew and that is not going to happen. But I, I've had, um, you know, usually they'll, if they have kids, uh, they'll come out for, as far as the artists, a portion of it. I yeah. have been on a tour that had the kids on for the entire time, but they'll do, and, you know, a lot of that might have to do with school and whatnot, uh, or just the level too. Yeah. Uh, because it is a greater expense too, because more rooms and people. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, if you like my son or the other crew members, kids will often at least come out to the shows that they're around and maybe get to spend a night or two, or you plan it around days off. So, you know, there's ways to break it up to where I'm not going to be just gone for six weeks. You know, I know I've got a couple of days off here, so I'm either going to go home or they're going to come mm -hmm. out or, you know, right. The more established you get, the more flexibility you have as well. Yeah. So let's say I'm an indie band. At what point do can I hire you to go on the road with me? At what point am I at, the, at that level? How do I know? Do I contact you and you help me make that decision? Yeah, I think that that's always an option. If you're sought after, you know, if, if people see numbers, they're going to come after you. If you're interested in, in finding a merch person, a lot of it's word of mouth. Um, a lot of bands at a lower level will take friends, uh, which is not necessarily the best idea uh, unless they actually know the job. If they're if you're seeking out a merch company for full representation, likely they're going to have a solution for a road person or how to best handle that. Um, and if you're just looking for somebody to come along and handle the merch and you do that all, uh, you know, you can, you know, word of mouth is a great way. I would, you know, go through venues that you like the best or other bands and ask for referrals. I mean, I don't know if you're talking about me in general or just like looking for a merch. I mean, to do somebody at your level, you know, to take somebody, whether it's you specifically or your equivalent uh, with your experience and your know-how, you know, at what point can I afford you? Do I need to be, do, what, what is, I need an ROI for you, basically. You know, I don't think their th bands think ROI, you know, return on investment. Yeah. But, if I'm, I need to be selling how much per head to how many people each night to to be able to afford hiring you to take care of that for me on the road. Ideally, you want to be doing probably like it's so hard, <laughs> but maybe five thousand is just a a number I'm throwing out there uh, on a regular basis. I mean, lots of artists are going to do on a lower level you know, one, a thousand, five thousand or five to 10, or I, I'm anywhere. It, and it depends on the show because I could have, you know, a $5,000 night, or I could have a $30,000 night, or I could have a hundred thousand dollar night. 
and that depends on the artist. So you can pay your road person a flat fee, uh, but mostly I'd say if you're selling and they're, or they're selling, then they are going to want to work on a percentage for motivation. That's good for the band because the more uh, they make, the, the more you make. So mm -hmm. you, you, it's good to have that factor in there. Um, you know, I've worked at all levels at this point, you know, it definitely takes like a certain number for me to step out into it. Um, but it's always negotiable too. So, you know, you also have to put that person up and pay for them to get there. So, you know, you're going to want to be able to afford their plane tickets and their hotel rooms and everything. Mm -hmm. Cause my days of sleeping on the van floor, thank goodness are past, <laughs> but there are plenty of people that are so excited and would do it for anything. So, you know, there's always somebody that will probably do it for cheaper, but you also get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. That's my next question is, can we talk maybe merch booth 101? Day okay. show. There have to be uh, some tips, some tricks, some uh, things that you have learned over the years that to run a successful merch, whether it's a booth, whether it's an area, whether it's a merch table, you know, in terms of, of flow, traffic flow, counting the money, not getting overwhelmed, all that kind of stuff, lighting personnel. Can you talk about some of those things so that we can kind of learn how to do a better job, especially for indie bands who are listening to this? Okay, sure. Um, let's make an example and I'll walk you through a day. It's going to be either the uh, house sells or we're selling and we're an indie band, right? So let's say we have a, um, a bus with a trailer and, or two trailers. And so you got your equipment in one trailer and I've got the merch in the other trailer. Well, first of all, I definitely want to keep my stuff organized because I want to be able to find it and um, pull stuff out pretty quickly. So uh, we're going to pull up to the venue and I'm going to pull out everything that I think I need for the show. And you have a good idea because you, um, you know, maybe we're halfway through the tour and I kind of know what's selling for night. So I'm going to do what we call, you know, my issue. Um, and I'm going to pull all everything that I need. I, I think I'm going to need. And usually you start with your returns from the night before, which means anything that from last night's show that I was left with, that's all going to be on like the end of it. So I'm going to immediately pull that and I'm going to look at my numbers to know what I need to add for tonight. So then I'm going to do a pull and I'm going to get all the merch that I think will be good to start the show with. I'm going to move it all in the venue and I'm going to lay it all out and I'm going to count it all in. So really 101 merch is you count it in, you sell it, you count it out. Mm. And that number, you know, you pray on all the heavens above matches what mm. your cash is. You know, and I always say the cash doesn't lie and the counts can because um, you know, you can forget and write one number wrong or have an input issue in your Excel sheet and everything's off. So that's um, a really good reason why uh, you have two the checks and balances. So let's say at this show, um, 
I'm going to sell and then I'll do a venue sells. I'm going to count it all in, but the venue is going to show up and they're going to take a percentage. So they're going to want to check the counts, you know? And so either you'll go over numbers and they'll either physically count with you, or they may just trust you and take your numbers. And I prefer that they actually count me because I want to make sure that my numbers are right. When I counted was right. So I tend to make sure that they count as well. And then we double check our numbers and then we agree on a gross, meaning we agree on everything that I have on the floor is let's say $15,000. And so they put in all their numbers and they say, yep, that's what we have. And you don't start selling until you both agree that you have the same number. And then um, you plan for, you know, when your busiest times are going to be, it's going to be when the door is open before the show starts. And then if there's several bands playing, it's going to be between each act. So from when the doors open till the show starts, you should be, you should have a rush and you should be nonstop. You want to make sure you have enough people selling. So if you're doing really good numbers, you're going to want to have an extra person there. So you can step away and grab more larges of the most popular shirt because you do, they were popular that night. So you have two people ideally in a well-selling situation then you're able to do ads. Each time you do an ad, you have to make sure you update your sheet so everything is accounted for. Then, you know, between the breaks, so when the band starts, people will generally go watch the show and then you'll have another rush. So you kind of always keep ahead of the game, always count your money. And anytime that you have a downtime, you do something that will um, keep you in line for the rest of the night. So you always want to be working towards, okay, what can I do to get out of here? Right? So if uh, that's, that's if you're selling, if the venue sells, um, you would basically just check everything in to them and they're totally responsible. Uh, but you also want to double check on them and make sure that they have what they need. So you'll come back and say, how's it going? Or you'll give them your number so they can text you, you know, what they, you might want to add. Um, but still, you don't start selling till you both agree that you have the same number of what you gave them. And then at the end of the night, you count it all out and agree on your settlement. Mm -hmm. I feel like I could talk about this for hours. So sometimes I feel like I'm rambling, but like um, if I'm missing something or I divert from the question, please get me back on track. Um, you're totally on. That was great. So let's say you're really doing well with cash at the booth or at the booths. Do you, every hour, do you, let's say the venue is selling, do you go around and do you collect money or do you just leave that much cash in the, in the booth? If the venue is selling, they're responsible for it. And they're either going to pay me at the end of the night or they're going to wire the money, you know, on an indie band, like there is probably going to be cash. If it's a larger right. band, like, like Blondie or Neil Young, you know, it's likely that it's a wire transfer that's set up and I might take some cash for expenses at the end of the night. Right. Um, How about during the night? If it's, if the cat, you know, you got people I'm selling. selling and I have a ton of cash, um, I'm going to be bundling and counting and double counting as I go and probably, you know, pulling it and taking it to a safety spot, you know, right. whether it be right. uh, like a, in a locked container on right. the bus or something. Um, 
but I, I'm going to be responsible for it. So uh, I'm going to take care to make sure what's going on. Um, okay. and, you know, and some, and, the, and usually, you know, we're talking about a larger act and you may have several booths. So I'll hire, you know, per whatever we need, you know, and you can estimate what you're going to need based on what your sales are. So in a, in a very large selling, maybe arena type show, you can guess that you need one person for every like $10,000 sold. And that's mm -hmm. for somebody that's really good at what they do. And maybe double that, like double the people if, if you're don't have like a market that has really a lot of people that are in that field and you're, mm -hmm. if you're using people, first timers or maybe amateur sellers, uh, you, you know, you may need more help. Right. And sometimes actually that can be hindering. So you, you would rather have a couple people that were really good than a lot of people that really don't know what they're doing. Sure. sure. All it takes is like one miss count of one shirt to throw everything off. Yeah. We have about four minutes left. So uh, my last last question is uh, the, mer the merch booth itself. What is the best way, especially for on the indie band side, best way to execute your merch booth so that you can maximize potential to sell your various items? I would say keeping everything organized um, and clearly displayed. I like to do like menus now, especially if you have long lines that maybe it's just um, a one sheet that's laminated with all of the designs and a price that mm -hmm. you can pass through the lines. I mean, a lot of things are going to change now post COVID, you know, in a few years, hopefully we forget this ever happened. I doubt it, but uh, you know, something, some sort of visual, I think moving into the new world, um, you may be able to send out like uh, anybody that buys a ticket can get, um, uh, you know, the merch options in advance and you may be able to pre-purchase and pick up, mm -hmm. or at least you'll know what's going to be there. Um, but like, you know, inventory is always going to be a question. So will they have your size? Uh, maybe, you know, keep, if you know you're going to have a line, knowing how that line is going to wrap and thinking in advance, like, okay, here's where we're set up. And if I have a line and how do I control that line? Mm -hmm. um, keeping all your shirts organized, you know, they have the box method, which, you know, you have all your shirts hanging over a side of the box and it's easy to pull. Mm -hmm. uh, never roll your shirts. That's a often mistake of young bands is they roll it and tape it and put the size on the tape. Like, don't do that, actually, because they it doesn't say it really save space or keep you more organized. Dell, uh, what's his name? Ferrano. Yeah, I read one time where he said less is more and don't keep the don't have somebody come up there and go, well, let me see the black. Let me see. No, maybe I want the No, Do you find that true? To keep it down to you, can you keep don't want down. 15 designs that all look the same that's for sure i think you know four to eight is a good number depending on where you're at if you're the headliner or you're the opener um it's good to have a little bit but you know having one or two and you've got a really huge fan base that is just hungry you you know they may buy one of everything so you, there's a fine line somewhere you don't want to have too little and lose sales um but you definitely don't want to have too much because it takes longer for the transaction and 
um, it's harder to keep up inventory. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have you ever run across where the opening act has to kick back to the headliner a piece of the merch? Wow. Uh, no, actually, they have to they they would have to match the price usually. So, yeah. like, if the headliner's shirt is thirty, yeah. you know, they can't sell their shirt for twenty. Right. They have to sell it for the same price. Right. I have not seen a headline band that made the opener band pay them because, you know, usually they want to support them. I would say, yes. you know, because they're not doing, you know, they're up and coming or something. So, right. you know, I've worked yeah. a lot of post headline yeah. tours too, where they maybe share a t-shirt and then split those. Because uh, the argument can be made that it's a, you know, the fan has 10 bucks. I'd rather them spend it on, the headliner than on, on the opening act. So that's why I want a piece of it. But I've never heard of it, but I've always asked that question. Yeah. I don't think it would be nice. <laughs> at that, yeah, at that point, at that point you're getting in, a, it's almost pay to play. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, so which is kind of a sleazy thing to do. So yeah, fortunately I have not been in that instance, but yeah. I'm sure it happened somewhere. Well, I'm sure there's been an opening act that it's paid to the headliner to play. To open for them many yeah. times yes many times, of course but we need to wrap it up ah. if we've come upon the witching hour and i didn't even ask about sell-off date and so on yet <laughs> maybe that's maybe. 102 that's right yeah yeah uh yeah music biz 102 and more we'll we'll have uh maybe we'll have aaron maybe we should have aaron come back when uh shows start up again and then we can oh be so excited for shows yeah. to start back up that with the new good. world so hopefully that would be still in 2021 that we have that interview so yeah, yeah we're hoping i have a tour right now for november so um i don't have a lot of hope based on feedback i've heard but you never know i'm not surprised by anything right now mm -hmm. we will see well yeah. aaron mason thank you so much for joining yes, us thank you thank you david and Stephen. thank you so much right, for having me and you know, David, she didn't drop any F-bombs. Yeah, she's a respectable a respectable person, so we appreciate it. Dr. Stavon, thank you for being on Music Biz. Well, thank you, my co-host. Yes, and hang on one sec, Aaron, because at the end of every okay. show, we do not say goodbye. You know what we say? We say... See you later. Adios! Auf Wiedersehen! Adios! Ciao!
как ты, как ты.